A fair market value defensibility analysis takes a compensation review one step further than a fair market value review. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am your host. Today, we're going to discuss the differences between a fair market value defensibility analysis and what I refer to as just a fair market value review. As I've stated in previous episodes, fair market value is a component of many Stark Law exceptions, as well as a couple of the safe harbors under the anti-kickback statute. And those exceptions, as I articulated in previous uh, episodes, is the personal services arrangement, employment, the rental of space and equipment, the isolated transactions, the limited remuneration, and also the fair market value exceptions. All of them state that the arrangement has to be fair market value. And I always say representative of fair market value, even though the word representative is not technically in the exception. But that's what we're driving for, is that the compensation represents fair market value in light of the facts and circumstances, which is the twist that I'm trying to describe in in this episode. So for those exceptions to apply, not only must the arrangement be fair market value, but also a separate component of those exceptions, as well as under the safe harbor, is that the arrangement must be commercially reasonable. And commercial reasonableness, as I have previously described, is multifaceted. It's not only just the application of fair market value, but it's the facts and circumstances of the arrangement and whether or not the arrangement is reasonable in light of all of those facts and circumstances. You know, quite literally is, would a reasonable provider, for example, a hospital, enter into the same type of financial arrangement uh, for the services that are being proposed and at the compensation level that is being proposed? And according to the Stark Law, fair market value is the value in an arm's length transaction. And again, arm's length transaction does not just get you there. There has to be more than just negotiating at arm's length. But it's a value in an arm's length transaction consistent with the general market value of the subject transaction. And then when you're looking at compensation, it is the compensation that would be paid at the time the parties entered into the service arrangement as a result of bona fide bargaining between well-informed parties that are not otherwise in a position to generate business for each other. 
And as I say, stated previously in other episodes, it's not like you can put all the facts and circumstances into a jar, shake it up, and then a fair market value rate comes on. You really do need to assess the overall arrangement and also the benchmark data that does exist in order to determine whether or not you have a fair market value arrangement. Now, a lot of times I have this question frequently by clients is, well, can't we ask the government to tell us what fair market value is? And the answer is no. The government will not provide any opinion with respect to fair market value. But obviously, whenever a quitam relator or there's a report that above fair market value compensation exists, then the government, through most likely the Department of Justice, will try to litigate an arrangement to assert that the compensation arrangement is not fair market value. And then whenever the compensation arrangement is determined not to be fair market value, then you enter into this period of disallowance and all of the referrals at the, from the point of the compensation exceeding fair market value forward cannot be billed to Medicare. And if if the reimbursement has already been received for those services, then that reimbursement cannot be retained by the designated health service entity. So next, let's just focus on the fair market value range. I mean, typically, I would get clients who would call me and they would uh, pull out like the uh, Sullivan Cotter uh, benchmark data or the Medical Group Management Association data and said, look, the fair market value range is from, let's say, $100 at the 10th percentile up to $500 at the 90th percentile. So the range, and this is per hour, so the range per hour is between $100 and $500. So therefore, as long as we're compensating the physicians between $100 and $500, then the compensation is, per se, fair market value. Well, that's wrong. Uh, because you have to have a commercially reasonable application of the arrangement and apply it to the benchmark data. Quite literally, you have to step back and say, is this arrangement justified at the 75th percentile because we believe the facts and circumstances warrant that the compensation be pegged at the 75th percentile? And what are the relevant factors that we should use in assessing the arrangement to determine where the compensation should be pegged based upon benchmark data. Now, again, I'm, I'm focusing here on benchmark data, but later in this episode, I'll talk about when you jump outside of the benchmark data. But when, if we're only going to use benchmark data, then obviously, as I've indicated in previous episodes, there are various productivity components that you would need to take a look at. Are we going to look at productivity based upon work RVUs, collections, visits, charges. And then now that we're uh, transitioning into value-based arrangements, you take a look at quality indicators as well as, well as value-based arrangements and the components of value-based arrangements, including cost control and things like that. So all of that goes into play as to how you would determine along the benchmark range the compensation should fit into a specific percentile. And from my perspective, that is a commercially reasonable application of the use of fair market value benchmark, that you have to reasonably apply the benchmark and peg the benchmark data to the compensation arrangement being reviewed. So frequently I see third-party valuations that would say that 
uh, the evaluator provides a low, medium, and high. Let's say the low is at the 25th percentile, the median is at the 50th percentile, and the high is at the 75th percentile. Well, by establishing that, you're establishing what the range is, but the magic in fair market value, especially a defensibility review, is how do you apply the facts and circumstances to that range? Uh, because almost anybody can go out and to and provide benchmark data and to tell you what the range is consistent with the benchmark data. It's more challenging, and again, from my perspective, it's the defensibility aspect, is how do you apply the facts and cir- circumstances to that range uh, that you're trying to link to the benchmark data. Now, obviously, if I was only going to look at productivity components, and this would be work reviews, collections, visits, and charges, then I could calculate where that physician is aligning to the benchmark data. Let's say that the physician aligns at the 70th percentile. Then I can go into the compensation and peg the physician's compensation approximately at the 70th 70th percentile, you know, plus or minus 10% on either side of that 70th percentile. But sometimes productivity does not tell the whole story. Uh, we can be looking at various market issues about the ability for the uh, hospital to recruit and employ or to contract with physicians of a particular specialty. Maybe we're dealing with a physician that uh, that. It has a super specialty that we need to take a look at, and that's where the defensibility comes in. So what I do in my fair market value defensibility analysis is I look at the overall arrangement, the facts and circumstances, as if I was advocating or arguing the fair market value range for the compensation in front of a court, the Office of Inspector General, or the Department of Justice. So I put my lawyer's hat on, and this is the reason why I think that you know lawyers who are experienced in evaluating fair market value, and I have a lot of that experience not only with dealing with my clients when I was in-house or also just sitting across the table from people from the DOJ and the OIG, understanding how they approach the application of this data. So again, I look at the application of all the facts and circumstances, and I try to give a reasoned analysis based upon my experience as a lawyer as to whether or not I believe that the proposed compensation arrangement is defensible as being representative of fair market value. Again, I'm taking it one step further than just saying that I believe it to be representative of fair market value. I'm saying that I reasonably believe, as nobody can 100% guarantee, but I reasonably believe that the compensation arrangement is defensible in front of one of those tribunals, uh, the DOJ or the OIG or a court, I believe that the compensation is defensible based upon the facts and circumstances. So what are those facts and circumstances? Those facts and circumstances can be extremely high productivity by the physician, a high demand for a particular specialty, but a low supply of that specialty. Let's say that in, in this service area, you need to have six oncologists, but you only have three. And so because of the, the high demand but low supply, uh, the, the hospital may have to pay more in compensation to those physicians. You may have a physician who's a thought leader. You can look at historic compensation. I would not rely on that component alone, but historic compensation does tell you something about that physician. 
You can have a physician who's in a super subspecialty or a multi-specialty. Uh, you can have a nationally renowned program that you need to maintain, and therefore your searches are not just searches from the local service area, but you're going on a national or even an international search because your program is renowned. Uh, you can have a high number of hours that the physician is dedicating above what is considered a one, normal 1.0 FTE. Again, I've, as I've stated in previous episodes, you can't be more than one person, but you can have a high number of hours. So if our typical 1.0 FTE is 2,080 hours, which is usually a full-time equivalency, but you have a physician who is, you know, is consistently putting in about 3,000 hours, you know, that can be used in order to evaluate the compensation on the higher end. The physician may be in a leadership capacity. Uh, you could have a physician who's taken a disproportionate amount of call. Let's say that the physician is providing call coverage services more than once every three days. So that I would put that into a disproportionate call category for which additional compensation could be paid. Maybe your only alternative is locum tenens, which obviously has a higher rate, as well as maybe this physician is providing significant amount of non-physician practitioner supervision. And because of that supervision, the physician is taking time away from direct patient care services, and therefore we can compensate the physician because of the disproportionate or significant amount of non-physician practitioner supervision. So when I render defensibility analysis, again, from a lawyer's perspective, I'm evaluating all of these facts and circumstances to determine whether I believe that the facts and circumstances not only justify how we are benchmarking the compensation to the benchmark range, but also if there's going to be a disconnect between productivity and compensation, let's say that the productivity is at the 70th percentile, but the arrangement needs to be at the 90th percentile plus, then these other relevant factors need to come into play as we're analyzing the defensibility of the compensation arrangement. Now, I went through that list, and if anyone listening would like to have a copy of that list of these, those other what I would call subjective factors or business justification factors, just uh, provide an email to me, uh, and I will be happy to uh, send that list to you. So that's how you would apply the benchmark data. That's how you would apply the facts and circumstances in a subjective fashion or a business justification fact, faction. But the other things that you need to take a look at is the other factors that may exist. You need to talk uh, with the, uh, the employer or the entity that is contracting about the potential for qui tam risk. What is the likelihood that there is somebody looking over this compensation that could turn into a quitam relator, which would obviously raise the risk, which would further justify you know, really a deep dive into the defensibility of the arrangement. Then you also have to take a look at whether or not there are competitors who may dis be disgruntled because they did not receive the same type of compensation. I, and I faced these type of facts before, um, that let's say that you have a physician 
uh, who has received compensation, but another physician who was offered the exact same compensation, but went out to uh, one of their healthcare attorneys or evaluation firm who said that compensation is too rich and could be above fair market value. So that could be somebody who may have an axe to grind and may want to become a quitam relator with respect to the compensation that was proposed to the physicians who actually entered into the compensation arrangement with the hospital or the DHS entity. Uh, you also have to have a knowledge of the service area. So it's not just like taking the blind facts of the productivity, but I typically like to have some more information from the DHS entity about the service area, what is happening in the service area with this particular specialty so it would enlighten me as to how I would use these other subjective or business judgment factors. You can take a look at the past litigation of the entity. And you know, based upon past litigation, there could be a heightened sense of awareness with respect to fair market value and commercial reasonableness. And also, you may want to ask about past reviews. So these are either internal reviews or reviews that have been prompted by a payer, especially a Medicare or Medicaid contractor. It'd be nice to know if there have been any claims or questionable claims, especially if it has to do directly with the physician's evaluation and management services for which you're trying to compensate the physician. So by way of example, if we're trying to compensate a physician to be an orthopedic surgeon, but we believe that there's a high probability that that physician could potentially be slightly upcoding, then it may not be warranted to enter into a productivity compensation model with that physician. That's something you'd have to carefully analyze to see whether or not you feel comfortable in entering into that type of arrangement. So how does this physician function what is the compliance rate of this physician? And that it really is another commercial reasonableness or defensibility issue as to whether or not to put this physician on a productivity compensation, or maybe it'd be better to have a fixed salary because of the issues that the organization has faced with this particular physician. So again, it's just driving the point home is that it's not just looking at a benchmark range. It's how do you apply from a defensibility perspective the range to the subject compensation arrangement and secondarily what other non-productivity facts and circumstances can be applied whether they're negative or positive that could impact the compensation arrangement with that referring physician. So that's the defensibility aspect that I look at when I perform fair market value defensibility analysis for my clients. So this now brings us to the three Captain Integrity punch points for our Stark Integrity episode today. So Captain Integrity punch point number one, that there is a legal difference between a simple fair market value review, and I'll put simple in air quotes, but a fair market value review and a fair market value defensibility analysis because the defensibility analysis looks at the likelihood of success of the compensation arrangement if it was ever challenged by a court, a quitam relator, the DOJ, or the OIG. Captain Integrity punch point number two is commercial reasonableness 
is in play with respect to the application of the benchmark data and the other facts and circumstances. So this legal term that exists under the Stark Law, as well as the anti-kickback statute of it being commercially reasonable, is it commercially reasonable to apply the benchmark data in the way that we want to apply the benchmark data? And are there other facts and circumstances that would warrant exceeding the application of productivity to the benchmark range uh, from a commercial reasonableness perspective. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is the major issue to consider in a defensibility analysis is the subjective factors and the business judgment factors. So these are off of just applying productivity to compensation. These are those other subjective factors that I listed uh, during this episode. So again, the three Captain Integrity punch points for this Stark Integrity episode is there is a legal difference between a fair market value review and a fair market value defensibility review. Number two, commercial reasonableness is in play with respect to the application of the benchmark data and the facts facts and circumstances. And Captain Integrity punch point number three is the major issue in play with a defensibility analysis is considering the subjective and the business judgment factors that may exist in the market or with respect to this particular DHS entity or the contracted physician. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.